0: Life Issues with Vicky Gibbons on UCB1. An apple a day will keep the doctor away. And if only it was that easy to have a clean bill of health. Due to coronavirus, many of us have thought more about our health than ever before. But before the pandemic, in the UK, we were already facing an epidemic because of obesity, with a growing number of children and adults being overweight. What's happened to our relationship with food? How as Christians should we be thinking about our bodies? How do we help ourselves and those we love when it's such a sensitive and complex issue? I'm Vicky Gibbons and Dr Mark Daly is a consultant physician with an interest in diabetes, nutrition and obesity with more than 25 years experience in these fields. And he joins us for today's Life Issues – Can you help us define what we mean by obesity? Because we talk about being overweight, but then there are all sorts of body types. I think of members of my own family who we once would have described as being big boned, but clearly that's not a medical term.
1: So for me, obesity is the point at which somebody's weight has a biological impact on their health. And that can be physical, predominantly physical, but it can also very much be psychological. I'm not talking about things like anorexia where people have a disordered view of their own weight, but at a point at which um, their weight is above a level at which, uh, which is optimal for their health. That would be my main principle behind why should you define obesity is related to the health risk of being overweight. Now, more specifically, we tend to define that by body mass index Which is simply a mathematical equation between your height and your weight. Now, um, that has some imperfections, uh, but broadly, it's a very good starting point. And certainly, there are very few people who are um, fully healthy in terms of their weight when they reach a body mass index of 30, which is the definition of medical definition of obesity.
0: So I am someone that, I'll be honest, engages with stones and pounds. Body mass index isn't something that I am familiar with. However, if you go on the NHS's website, there is a BMI calculator, which is extremely helpful. But that maths behind BMI, explain a bit more so that we can understand, because from the patients that you have seen over the many years, how much does the public engage with the whole idea of the body mass index?
1: Patients engage with it very well, because quite often it's used to set criteria for treatments, whether that's surgery or whether that's access to medication. So they're aware of it. And for want of a better word, they're worried well. A lot of people will be acutely aware of their body mass index. So I would say a lot more people now um, are aware of it. Um, People are comfortable with the idea of what their weight was when they were most happy with their weight. So a lot of people say, when it was 18, it was great. I could eat what I wanted. I was nine and a half stone and I felt really well at that weight. And that's not a bad starting point um, for when you're talking to people about their aspirations and why they want to lose weight. When did they actually feel good about their weight?
0: Here in the UK, we know that this is an epidemic, the scale of the problem is ever increasing. But it's not just here in the UK, it's when you look globally, actually, that this is a pattern occurring.
1: Yes, definitely. So, America has always led the way. Um, And um, there there are frightening historic data in America where you can look at state by state, how they've progressed over 25, 30 years as the percentage with an elevated BMI has moved up and up and up, and it's incredibly striking. Um, Australia has struggled as well, and we in the UK tend to be um, ahead of Europe in the worst sense, unfortunately. Um, But Europe have been progressing in that that direction as well. And it's only more recently that we've seen a slowing down, particularly in childhood obesity. and with this, we've seen a massive increase in diabetes in the time that I've been practicing, which is uh, uh, nearly 30 years.
0: Talk us through some of the quite serious health conditions that are attached to obesity, thinking through some of the risk factors for ending up with a diagnosis of being obese. The
1: different, that there's different the consequences and the risk factors for being obese. The consequences, I think, are what occupy us in, in, in medicine the most, particularly the physical aspects. But I think we neglect people's emotional health as well. So the predominant risk factors are around heart disease, and people know about that. And people are now better informed and they know about diabetes, although it should remember that type 2 diabetes occurs across a very wide range of weights and body mass index and relatively modest increase in, in weight will increase your risk of diabetes. Um, so for instance, your risk of diabetes actually starts to increase from a body mass index of 23, which in most terms is normal. And for people of South Asian origin who are more prone to diabetes, is it an even lower body mass index. Um, but it, the, the diabetes, the heart disease, the high blood pressure But also osteoarthritis uh, really affects people who struggle with their weight. And I've seen that many, many times. And of course, once you can't exercise, it becomes even more difficult um, to lose weight. Um, The other thing that's been appreciated over the last 10, 15 years or so is that actually obesity is also a risk factor for cancer. Um, And people really didn't realize that before. and, And the public don't widely appreciate that as well. And for more than a decade of doing obesity clinics, I also know how distressing psychologically and emotionally people feel about uh, obesity um, and also um, their acceptance in society sometimes.
0: Because it is such a visible health problem, because the numbers are increasing, have you seen attitudes in patients shift over the last couple of decades as you've been working in this area?
1: So um, I've seen the public as a whole normalise to relatively high body mass index. Um, Quite often in the past when I've done research into nutrition and how to help people lose weight, when you approach people at a range of unhealthy body mass indexes, they're actually quite shocked when you introduce the idea to them that their weight might be unhealthy. And when you show pictures of overweight people to the general public, they will tend to refer to them as normal, even when they're at a body mass index of, say, 30. Um, So as a whole, we have got used to seeing each other being heavier and have normalized to it. Um, As a whole, people have better recognized the health problems associated with it. Um, But people really, really struggle to do something about that and to either change their lifestyles and or to actually lose and sustain weight loss. I often tell my patients when I'm saying, they say, look, I'm really struggling with this. I don't seem to be able to do it. And I say, it's because you're doing something that is very, very hard. If you look at success rates for giving up, gambling, giving up drugs, giving up smoking, they are far higher than successful weight loss. So we should never judge people for their weight. And we should never judge, we shouldn't judge people anyway, for many, many reasons, but we should never judge people because it is so hard. Um, uh, And the body fights you very hard when you try to lose
0: weight. And you mentioned there examples of smoking, examples of, you know, addiction to gambling. Is it that ultimately we cannot live without food, which is part of the challenge that we are always going to have some kind of relationship with food, which makes it such a, such a challenge for individuals?
1: Yes. So the the body has, the body is beautifully made and the body has many, many mechanisms for preserving weight. If we lived in biblical times, then obesity was not an issue and we'd be much more worried about starvation. And we needed those same mechanisms to help survive. Um, And interestingly, if you look at different populations around the world, the populations who have experienced famine in the last uh, one or two thousand years are more likely to struggle with their weight than people who haven't. So. Uh, um, And that's likely because famine will tend to select people who are more likely to put on weight who will survive. So over the last couple of thousand years, we have ended up in some parts of the world with populations who are selected to gain weight. Um, And that can be very difficult. And that's because the genes, Uh, uh, we all have very different genes and some genes will predispose people um, to gain weight.
0: In Life Issues today, we wanted to set aside time to explore an all too common problem in the UK with around one in every four adults and around one in every five children aged 10 to 11 now obese. Dr Mark Daly is helping us to think both biblically and medically about our response and the need to prioritise healthy living. Now you mentioned that idea of our uh, genetical history having an impact. What are the problems feed into this situation of of why we have so many obese people, particularly if we look to the UK situation at the moment?
1: It is definitely very very complex and for every individual the story will be different. I have seen the tragedy of uh, people who've been abused in childhood struggle with their self-image and become obese for psychological reasons in adulthood. And in that way, that starts in childhood. At the same time, there are aspects of culture which can be very different in different families. So people can have a culture of, you know, you have to finish your plate uh, um, or you know, go on, have a little bit more. And very different cultures uh, in different families, different approaches of different families to food. And that definitely has a place too, Um, but there is, in the sense of it staying childhood and genetic, there has been really surprising research showing that if twins are separated at birth, and you separate identical and non-identical twins, the identical twins. This is like adoption studies, the way they've historically followed up people who've been adopted, and that in adult life the um, identical twins have been incredibly close in weight to each other, despite being raised in completely different families. So there is no one answer for all of this. We can say it's about how we live modern lives, and there is truth in that. Uh, We can say it's about psychological issues, and there is truth in that. But there is also uh, very much a component that how we are made and how we are different from each other, will make us more likely to be overweight or not.
0: That's fascinating what you shared about that study involving the twins. I wonder if we take, for example, first of all then, the idea that our lifestyles have become more sedentary, we've moved towards a knowledge-based economy. How have you seen the pandemic when we've been forced into these lockdowns and, you know, there was excitement that the population might actually be, more of us might be engaging with exercise, walking, cycling, but if you look to studies by UCL, Sports England, many who've been looking at this, actually as lockdowns have progressed, many people have switched away, engaged back with television, working more to fill their time how has the pandemic, do you think, changed things in the last year or so?
1: So I, I think we've seen a split. I think this, uh, um, uh, I see a lot of patients um, in another part of my work, because I work with emer- uh, patients who come to hospital as an emergency with breathlessness and that sort of thing. Um, and I see a lot of patients who have become physically much less fit during the lockdown and who have gained significant weight. Um, And I see, unfortunately, in line with those studies, a smaller proportion of people who have relished the opportunity to do more exercise um, and uh, eat differently and who have lost significant amounts of weight. Um, So I think there are uh, people who've been significantly disadvantaged in, as well as all the social, uh, emotional and the support ways during lockdown, who've also their health has suffered as well.
0: And how important is exploring this from a psychological perspective, as you say? Because over the last few months, I've heard of of those friends, family who have admitted they put their hands up, said, "You know, I've put on some lockdown weight." And at one point, it seemed to be almost okay to talk more openly about those kind of experiences. How how important is it to provide those safe places to share honest experiences of what's been going on with our weight when that isn't always necessarily happening, I guess, at the moment?
1: Okay, so I think it's incredibly important to provide safe places for people to talk about their weight and to not feel judged. Because you have to think about what happens when people feel judged or feel unable to talk about it as they will go into denial. So when you talk to people who really, really struggled with their weight and feel judged by it, they will say to you, it's not my fault, I hardly eat anything, it's my metabolism, and that's why my weight isn't coming off. And for them, that's a defense mechanism, and that's a defense mechanism to not be judged by other people. Um, And in one way, that's positive. In another way, it becomes a barrier to them losing weight because they no longer see um, exercise or uh, the way they eat as a means of losing weight, because it's become separate. It's become, how shall we, we're pocketed or boxed into the idea that it's about the metabolism, whereas in reality, um, it might be about their genetic natural appetite and a little bit about the metabolism, but predominantly, It will be about their lifestyle. Um, I should say, though, that from my experience of seeing such a wide range of people over a long period of time, that I honestly believe that people have different appetites and different levels of hunger in different situations. Um, And um, there is good evidence to support this when you look at people or teenagers who, for instance, who tend to be um, Uh, overweight. Um, If you give people, they, they did a study where they gave people drinks, some with calories in, some not, but they were disguised. And then they let people naturally eat what they wanted to eat. And the people who were slim naturally reduced what they ate by the amount was in the drink. Their just physiology seemed to work so well that their appetite naturally responded and if they'd had a high calorie drink, even though they didn't know it, they reduced what they ate at the meal. Whereas the people who struggled with their weight seemed to respond in the opposite direction and didn't restrict their food intake and if anything, ate a a bit more. So um, when we're thinking about people's psychological health and things like this, we have to think about uh, how we understand why they're in the position they are and support them. But in particular, coming back to your point about people need to feel safe to talk about their weight because we are all different. We're all the weight we are for different reasons. And the important thing is not how we got there. The important thing is about how we support each other to do something about it.
0: What about nutritional education in this? I was just thinking about you saying about, you know, the amount of calories in the drink there. The latest report from the Food Foundation was suggesting that 16% of children's veg intake coming from things like pizza and baked beans. And yet, I think if you asked many people, they understand this idea of get your five fruit and veg a day. But clearly it's not always happening in everyday lifestyles in family situations either.
1: No, and... and Sometimes it's maybe it's about protected time to cook, to live as a family. Uh, um, and um, some people don't necessarily have the cooking skills. And when we take people into groups and, and start to uh, teach them about nutrition and different ways of living, our dietitians will tell you that there are for many people, um, paradoxically, the people who are struggling with a high food intake actually struggle with cooking skills for some of them. And that narrows their choices because most or ma- many aspects of packaged or processed food um, tends to have what we call a high energy density. And what we do know is that the higher, the number of the cal- more calories in something per volume, the more difficult it is to, for us to control what we eat. And so therefore cooking your own food and being a low energy density, lots of fresh uh, vegetables in particular, um, uh, makes it uh, easier for us to control our weight. Um, but some people don't have those skills and some people in their families that they live don't have access to that lifestyle or that way of eating. And in some cases it's also about poverty and it's a combination of the poverty and skills. People will say to me, "I." Can't afford to eat well because this type of food is so expensive, or this low-calorie food is expensive, uh, um, and for reasons like this. The reality is that with the right education and support from professionals, that that's not the case, and you can eat healthily and eat cheaply. But it's a common myth that that's not the case, and it's another barrier that people see. So yes, do we have to help our children eat healthily? uh absolutely um i i am fortunate in that my i we live in a um in a diver- slightly diverse not ethnically diverse but culturally diverse household and that my wife is french um and who comes from a rural french family where there's a very strong tradition of um fresh vegetables and fresh food um at every meal and in a traditional french household you would quite often get your five portions of fruit and veg at one meal, let, across the, let, a, let alone across the whole day. But I didn't have the privilege of that upbringing when I was a child. And I think a lot of people, particularly in deprived environments, don't either. So, yes, it's a really important public health message.
0: We've seen public health campaigns around things like reducing salt in our diet also what's happening with sugar particularly when it comes to drinks fizzy pop also breakfast cereals what is the role of food companies in this as well and I guess do they have do they take seriously an ethical duty to their customers when you see our supply chains more and more are dominated by larger companies rather than kind of local smaller companies that might have the opportunity to think more ethically
1: so yes and i think it it is very diff- difficult because there is such a conflict of interest so when i talk to a group of patients or patients and they say right how do i eat more healthily for somebody who struggles with their weight i will say Eat less, first of all, just as a general principle, eat less. Eat less salt, because that's made a fantastic difference to blood pressure and ischemic heart disease around the world. Um, and then as, after that, then I then say eat less fat, particularly animal fat. Um, and then after that, I actually say eat less processed food because when you make your own food from fresh, you have a much better understanding of what is in it. And um, it it is a very often much lower energy density um, because you control the amount of oil that you put in. You you choose to pour off the, the fat from the meat that you're cooking. Um, you can choose to add more vegetables and all these things that you have no control over when you buy processed or packaged food, and that's difficult because for food companies, because they don't, with some exceptions, they don't make money from from supplying raw um, materials, if you like, raw vet- you know, raw ingredients for food. So there will be a conflict um, uh, because of that. Um, But I think they have made great differences. They've reduced the salt intake considerably through regulation. They're now reducing the sugar intake. And I think that is going to make a difference.
0: Other action the government have most recently taken uh, to do with TV ads, obviously being banned pre-9 o'clock now when it comes to certain types of junk food. How big an impact do you think that policy move will make?
1: Uh, This is a pretty controversial area. Uh, uh, um, Ultimately, people will only advertise if they're thinking that their advertising has an effect. Now, in tobacco, the argument was that they were only advertising against their competitors and therefore advertising didn't have an effect. But we've seen a considerable reduction in smoking. So I don't know, but my guess would be that that is going to have a positive impact.
0: And when you look to the government's response for this epidemic, is part of the complexity, because this issue isn't just a health issue, it falls across so many departments' responsibility, whether that's education, whether that's, you know, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, whether that's your local government department and what's happening in terms of uh, family situation and poverty
1: so I think we need to do more to target uh, families and people from deprived areas because they definitely struggle more and if you look at um, if you look at the data, they suffer more, and I would suggest that obesity is now a major part of the inequity in life expectancy between the social classes.
0: You're listening to Life Issues on UCB1. I'm Vicky Gibbons, joined by Dr. Mark Daly, who's a consultant physician with an interest in diabetes, nutrition, and obesity, and has several decades of experience. We've spoken already about how sensitive we need to be when we have discussions around weight, around body image, not just for those who are in a situation where they are overweight or obese, but also to the other end of the scale when we know of people struggling with things like anorexia and particularly we've seen a rise in eating disorders through this pandemic as well. How important is it to understand some think of perhaps the guilt and the shame and the emotions attached for individuals struggling with a healthy relationship with food who already perhaps feel guilty and judged, as you've previously mentioned, by society.
1: So it's very important and it, it, it's not just at the extremes. So when we, when we run an obesity clinic, one of the things we often give is, is, is an emotional eating questionnaire to patients in advance. And a lot of our staff who were supporting the service read that and went, oh, that's me. Because it has questions like Do you ever re- eat, do you ever reward yourself with food? Do you ever have a cream cake because you know you've been good? Do you, do you, um, celebrate with food sometimes now food is obviously a celebration in itself and and something we enjoy and we do as a social thing but sometimes people will reward themselves with food and say oh i've been good i'll have this or or at the other extreme they use food um, to try and lift their mood Uh, um, so people say well i felt depressed so i had had something to eat And related to that, as that becomes more and more pathological or more severe, people start to lose control of that balance. So, And guilt comes into it. And and in this context, well, guilt is not a positive thing for people who are struggling with their weight because it often has a negative impact on their, their control and their eating habits. So I've talked to many people who would say, and I felt guilty because I ate too much. But to make myself feel better for feeling guilty, I ate more. And you can see where that ends up. And that might surprise people who don't struggle with their weight. But when you talk to uh, a lot of people who've struggled with their weight all their lives, they will tell you that's not an uncommon situation for them.
0: I have known at least one carer who certainly had that kind of relationship in terms of their life was very full, in looking after their loved one and food was their comfort through that process. I wonder as well about that relationship, I guess, with children, when we reward good behaviour with food.
1: Yes, and um, how we do that has to be done so carefully in how we educate our children. And do we reward with special food rather than quantity of food? So there's a difference between saying, as a family, you've know, you done really well at this sport or this exam, or we're going to celebrate together. It doesn't have to be about, it shouldn't be about quantity of food. It might be about, we have a special dish that we enjoy together, or your favorite food is. But you can reward both with a celebration together and with food that is within your natural requirements, your natural appetite, your natural amounts, so that there isn't a feeling that it is extra. So there are other ways of making food special that doesn't increase its quantity or its calories. And that's probably a more positive way to use food um, uh, with uh, with children or with anyone, really, um, than simply to use it as straightforward reward particularly when it's things like cream cakes etc um and uh uh, yes and that 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 is a a more that's something we have to be very careful of
0: what about as christians and how we process this situation of recognising when someone has consumed too much food and the whole theology, the thoughts around sin and greed and gluttony, but then equally the danger of almost swinging the other way in terms of exercising and wanting a healthy body and almost idolising being healthy.
1: This is so much such a difficult balance. My personal view about this is that it's everything in its proportion and in its place in our lives with with our lord and each other being the most important things in our lives Um, and our food and our exercise and our physical fitness really all being secondary things that have their own importance Um, and they must not become more important um, than they should be so um, there's a proportionality, I think, in our lives as Christians to how we think about these things. You know, I, I know people who are are obsessed with fitness and lifestyle to the point where that is idolized in its own way. And just as we talk about the food industry, there is a, a fitness industry around this as well. So. It's balance. Is it to the detriment? When is it to the detriment of ourselves, our faith, um, our families in either direction? Um, so it can't, it should not become an obsession that takes away from the things that are important in life. And actually, in my experience, the people who have the most natural psychological health and the most physical health are the people for whom neither food nor health is at their center of their life. So they don't become preoccupied with food because and therefore they're less likely to get into this cycle of eating and guilt, etc, because they're not thinking about that. they're getting on with their lives. and they similarly they don't do the same with, with exercise because they have you know more central priorities of their faith um, and uh, and each other. And I think that is a more healthy balance um, to really to to be. Um, And we do see at the extreme, we do see that people who suffer with things like anorexia, which is probably separate again, rather than just being part of the spectrum, um, who will um, exercise very obsessively as part of their illness. Uh, and I've seen that with uh, many, uh, and I've looked after people with eating disorders over the years as well. And that's a very strong feature of their illness.
0: So, from your perspective, particularly a faith perspective as a doctor, as well, from God's word, from the Bible, what inspires you to help you in what you do and your understanding of what a healthy body, a healthy lifestyle, a healthy mind looks like?
1: So, it is. It does so much start with love the, love the Lord God with all your might, but also and the loving each other as you love yourself. And the key thing that I think people forget in this area is that you are actually always also supposed to love yourself as well because you are created in, in the image of God. And um, I think a lot of the people who struggle hugely with obesity have a very low, low, low self-esteem and at a basic level do not love themselves. And they need to know that they're loved by God and they need to know that they're loved by each other. And often when I do a clinic and in any form of disease, sometimes you can't change the physical aspects of what's happening to somebody. But you can leave them feeling valued as a human being by the way you treat them. Um, And therefore, how we treat each other, whether we're slim, whether we're obese, whether we're fit, whether we're unfit, whether we're ill, whether we're sick, communicating that sense of intrinsic value is really important. And actually, that is part for many people uh, at their obesity is actually building up their own self-esteem, because there is a link between our self-esteem and the control of our own lives. So uh, I think our faith calls us to, one, for those who struggle and have low self-esteem, that actually it is about loving uh, yourself, and for all of us is about leaving the people feeling around us valued by us as human beings.
0: This is Life Issues on UCB. Today we're exploring diagnosing when we're leading an unhealthy lifestyle, how that is just the start and why we need better understanding about the complexities of trying to solve this health crisis. I'm Vicky Gibbons and with me virtually is Dr Mark Daly who has more than 25 years of experience of supporting patients specifically in this area. So often in church, Mark, we... A lot of our hospitality, a lot of events that we put on, certainly prior to the pandemic, no doubt they'll be back in force eventually when restrictions are eased and the situation allows for it. So much of it does revolve around food and I guess there is so much imagery and so many stories that involve food in the Bible as well. So it's kind of understandable that we land there, but it isn't very ha- helpful for many within our church communities.
1: Yes, and that that's about offering choices and, again, part of the culture we live in. Remembering that a lot of the times that we read about in the Bible was that uh, Jesus was sharing food, sharing drink uh, with the disciples, with other people. Um, You know, food is a very key social part of our lives, and actually a lot of unregulated and uncontrolled eating happens alone. So um, I think actually eating together is a positive thing. But I think we also have to think about the type of foods we prepare, the type of proportions that we, we offer, and that there is a selection and choice for people. Uh, um, because there is this sense of, of naturally, we, our, our ce- celebratory foods are often very high in calories. Um, uh, and and therefore the proportions need to be portions need to be that much smaller. So that is something that we need to think about as a community.
0: What else can we be doing? And especially maybe when it comes to teaching within church about healthy lifestyles.
1: So we have an opportunity to offer um, offer help to people. I, I would love to know how many churches in the UK have. Specialised groups that support people with their weight in a positive way. Um, that also promotes self-esteem and yet has a, a level of um, the right level of education for the people um, who are attending. Um, in a hospital environment, uh, myself and uh, the dietitians for, for several years ran successful um Uh, weight loss groups for staff um, because something we didn't touch on but people who work shifts it alters their physiology and they really struggle with weight so a lot of people who work nights and a lot of people a lot of nurses struggle with their weight probably in part because of that and I think that's not that's not widely acknowledged so that's something that the hospital offered and I would love to see that um, I'm sure many churches do but that's an opportunity to work with the people in the church, because if you start saying to people and saying to a congregation, would anybody here like help with controlling their weight or losing weight? You will find that a pretty high proportion will say yes. And therefore, there's the opportunity in a faith environment. To, you know, um To support each other. So I think that, but again, it's supporting each other without judgment um, and making it a positive thing.
0: And as you say, it's about ensuring that those who are leading such groups have the right training, which is an interesting question, isn't it? How accessible that kind of understanding and knowledge that's required, how accessible training is for church communities?
1: Yes. And that's something that um, uh, could be really be done in a positive way. And I, I suspect in most churches, there will be some health professionals with training and knowledge in this aspect who can help or support, or that, that larger churches are able to offer training packages to people who want to offer that support.
0: I wonder if you could speak to perhaps the mum today who has a teenager and they're worried about their weight, or indeed an adult who's been listening to this conversation and perhaps feels that they're too far down the line with their lifestyle, being unhealthy to make a turnaround moments. What would be your advice to either of them?
1: So I think the first, the first thing to say is that um, I've worked with people at all stages of their lives who've achieved weight loss and benefited from that weight loss. And that as little as 5% of your weight makes a difference to your health. Um, and that sort of weight loss is achievable at, at any point in life. So being too far down the line, I think, is, isn't, uh, um, uh, isn't an issue, uh, um, except at the very end of, end of life, where often the problem is more of gaining weight. Um, in terms of... Um, uh, ability to change is that very often what we do when, when dietitians and um, people supporting people with weight loss, they don't look for massive changes. They don't look to say, change everything in your life now, eat high fiber, go vegan, whatever the choice is. They don't say, make all these things in one go. They generally say, make one or two changes. Because what people forget is that if your first challenge is to be weight stable, And most people are relatively weight stable. So from a point of view of weight stability, you only have to make one or two simple changes to start losing weight. Um, It becomes harder the more weight you lose because you have to make more changes, but that initial weight loss up to 5% can be achieved with simple changes. The next thing is that I think if a mother is, knows that her, her teenage child is struggling with their weight, I would say consider all aspects of that child's health because it, I'm not a specialist in paediatrics, but I have looked after people in their late teens. And what I know is that the earlier in life that a problem with weight starts, the more likely that there may be a psychological component to that. And particularly in teenage years, it can be about self-esteem. So again, how how happy is a teenager, how supported they are? How do they feel about their weight and what do they want to do? Uh, A teenager who's overweight will feel very judged by their peers and will will not want to be judged at home Isla, but they will want to be supported. So I would say that if you have a teenager, it's about simple little changes to help their lifestyle, whether it's a slight increase in their activity or it's a slight reduction in some of the food intake can start to make a difference. As a teenager, their metabolic rates will be higher than at any other time in their life. So their food intake will be um. Uh, uh, will be naturally quite high and relatively simple changes can help. I'm afraid when you start to get to my sort of age, it becomes much harder to lose weight because you have a a lower metabolic rate and you will see people say, why do I, when I was 18, I could eat what I wanted and then it's because every five years or so, your metabolic rate is slowing down. But as a teenager, I would say support them emotionally, emotionally that they feel loved and that they feel valued and then understand them as much as they can in terms of their self-esteem and then explore what they want.
0: The pandemic has been a wake up call for many people to actually remember what a gift health and life is. Do you see this as a potential moment for real inroads into tackling the obesity epidemic in this country or do you see just an ongoing upgoing trend in our obesity rates in the UK
1: i think it's a tremendous opportunity my worry is that it may have served the wealthier or the higher social classes amongst us more than the more deprived and um Uh, I've seen amongst patients, I've seen amongst colleagues that people who the pandemic has forced to work less have taken the opportunity to look at their lives, take stock, increase their exercise, take up new hobbies, and that's been very positive. As Christians and as people, I think we have to look to the inequity in our lives around us and say, what can we do to support people and the groups of people and the people in in our societies who struggle most with this. Um, So it's an opportunity, but it's not been as wide as I would have hoped.
0: Dr Mark Daly, thank you for sharing both your passion and your expertise with us here on UCB. Thank you. And if you have been personally affected by today's conversation, please do take time to speak to your GP. Use the NHS's online guides which offer care and support at nhs.uk or start by speaking to someone you trust, a family member or someone within your church community who will be able to confidentially support you. Remembering too that God wants us to be well and as it says in 1 Samuel whilst we may too quickly see one another's outward appearance and wrongly judge God always sees the motivations of our heart especially in the personal challenges we face. I'm Vicky Gibbons, and thank you for listening to Life Issues today. And make sure you catch the next Life Issues podcast on the UCB Player app or wherever you like to download your podcasts from.